Hello, it's so good to have you with us here at Leadership for Sustainability. This is the podcast where we help you lead on sustainability to deliver results and make a real difference in the world. I'm Osbert Lancaster, longtime sustainability coach, consultant and trainer, and co-founder of Realize Earth. In the first of our new interview series, I talk with Toby Petroselli at MUFG, Japan's largest and the world's fourth largest bank. Toby is Head of Sustainability and Transition Finance Strategy at MUFG Americas. She offers fascinating insights into the world of funding the transition to a net zero economy. But what really struck me was not just her lifelong passion for sustainability, but also the ways in which she has engaged colleagues across the bank, unleashing their skills and energy in support of sustainability. Toby, it is wonderful to have you with us today to share some of your experience of leading on sustainability. Maybe we'll start by giving the listeners a little bit of context. Can you explain what your job is? What does lead director, head of sustainability and transition finance actually mean? Absolutely. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. Again, I am the transition strategy and head of sustainability for MUFG. So we are a global bank. We're located in Tokyo. That is our main headquarters. We are the largest bank out of Japan and fourth largest globally. We have a little under $4 trillion in assets, and we are noted as one of the largest project financiers in the world. We span over 50 countries, and we have almost 200,000 employees globally. And one of the backbones to our operations is our sustainability strategy and our commitment to decarbonize and to transition our clients to a net zero economy. And so this is most of the work in which I focus on is really developing that environmental social governance initiative throughout the bank. We do work very closely with our Tokyo's global head of sustainability, and I represent all of our America's activities as head of sustainability here based out of New York. This includes everything from climate risk management to understanding our carbon reduction efforts, as well as the subsequent reporting necessary to really look at the metrics and frameworks that we work within. We also handle a lot of our sustainable finance initiatives. So we've pledged to spend over 330 billion US dollars, which equates to approximately 35 trillion yen in sustainable finance directly through 2030. We're almost halfway through that mark already. So that's kind of a good sign that we are committed. The market demand is there. So we're not shy on deals and opportunities. They are consistently in the market and, and we are happy to fulfill those. Brilliant. That's really helpful to understand a bit of that context. So before we sort of dive into what you're actually working on, what's been happening? What's got you excited or fired up about sustainability recently? Whether that's sort of work-related or whether it's just what's ha- something happening in, the, happening in the world? Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's a live wire for sure. We have an interesting kind of momentum at the moment. I think ESG, for lack of a better phrase, but is really focusing on that environmental, right? That understanding climate, understanding risk. And then you look at the social nomenclature, really looking at how we drive the retention of our employees and things of this nature. And then you look at the impact of our communities and what we do as an organization. And then you have that governance pillar, really looking at corporate governance and responsibility and policy drive. When you pull all these together, you're looking at really building a sustainable operation. 
And what I've seen in the course of my career, I've been doing this for 18 years, is a convergence from that socially responsible or corporate social responsible nomenclature and, and department within organizations that's really emerged now as an impact driven, truly an opportunity to create financial momentum and revenue stemming from identifying those ESG factors and managing risk more appropriately. So those factors are simply giving us an informed metric to decide on whether we want to finance or lend to a specific corporate. And what's helping us is we've been requiring clients corporate entities, and for the most part, we finance the Fortune 500, to disclose what they're doing in respect to those areas. And what has happened is we've seen now, finally, policymakers moving toward that. And so this is really where you see EMEA has notably taken the lead on that activity for a long time. But what is incredibly important at this point is to see policymakers coming out of the U.S., and most recently, the Securities Exchange Commission has proposed climate-related financial risks as an important endeavor for all public equities and critically mandating those disclosures in this next interim year. So right now, that, that report had gone out about eight months ago. We're looking to mandate that probably come this summer. It may fall into, you know, kind of the autumn time period late 2023. We've been monitoring this very well. This is probably the most exciting aspect we've seen in ESG, point blank. I mean, it is uh, a hard stop for all corporate entities now to pick up and run with uh, you know, that disclosure regimen. Most of what is being required in that SEC proposal is the backbone of the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, so TCFD, right? And so that was a, a framework and a best practice recommendation coming out of Michael Bloomberg in 2015, alongside Mary Shapiro, the former head of the SEC. And in that is set four strategic areas for companies to disclose against. And the SEC has truly grabbed hold of that and is now elevating it through this proposal. It's over a 600 page report, so it's pretty intensive. There were over 12,000 comment letters went through a very extensive period here in the U.S. to identify how and what pieces of that disclosure will be required. And one of the key components to that was what we consider scope three. Those are really those indirect, that further down the supply chain, or for us as a financial institution, our clients' admissions and our clients' activities. And so that's something we really want to focus on. A lot of pushback around that, but we're, we're anticipating we're going to see a scope three requirement coming out of the SEC. Oh, that's, that all sounds really exciting and definitely some, sounds like some real progress there. At Realize Earth, we're really passionate about helping support organizations really move along what we think of as their journey to sustainability. One of our experiences is that, that the things which help sustainability managers and directors move their organization on that is being able to engage and involve colleagues and stakeholders. So what I'm really curious about from, you know, A is sort of, is that your experience? that sort of importance of involving others and getting them on board. But if it is, maybe like, well, what, is there a particular moment or sort of aspect of your career in sustainability where you're particularly proud of? And what was what was going on there? Who, who else was involved? Hmm. Sorry, yeah, I'm throwing two question. questions at you in one there. but No, it's a great <laughs> question. I, I, I mean, firstly, I, I think that, you know, operationally, where have we seen stakeholder engagement and really moving from that shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism has been a really critical 
point in time for the momentum around sustainable business. And we operate a sustainable business office for the Americas, right? That's what I head here yeah. at MUG. And in doing so, we include stakeholders from the various NGOs, our shareholders naturally, our ECA, our executive committees, our internal employee set. We work very closely with the communities that we serve and then our clients naturally. And in the respect of our clients, we then in turn speak to them very, very specifically about the communities in which they operate. One of the things we follow, for instance, is the equator principles. So for every project over $50 million that we finance, there's a very rigorous due diligence process that's based on something called the equator principles. It's been out since 2005, and we continue to strive to illuminate that through all of the activities we do, whether it be a renewable energy project or even an LNG project. So, you know, we do have, you know, through our portfolio, a varied amount of clients that are in the power sectors. And so it's important to engage not just the solar developers or wind developers, but also really our oil and gas clients, our power and utilities clients. This is where we feel client engagement is most critical. You know, we don't want to see a transition in our economy that doesn't include us. So we can influence, we can determine, we could reallocate and price capital differently. As one of the largest allocators of capital in the world, we're there in a specific and a, and a very critical point where we can drive that change through our clients. So it's that in stakeholder engagement, that client engagement is something we monitor, we measure, and we perform against on a regular cadence. And that's a really important part of what we do and what our sustainable business office endeavors to accomplish. And so from stakeholders, that is a critical point that we definitely reference. And then in turn, on the flip side, each of those corporate clients require some form of engagement with us because we are a material stakeholder for them. And so you hear a lot of clients and a lot of people in the sustainability space going through what they call a materiality assessment. And in those assessments, we tend to see the banks, obviously their supply chain, their vendors, as well as what their customer is, all being engaged to some degree. And then what is most material for them? Well, their source of capital is the most material aspect. And so there's an enormous opportunity for us as, as officers within the bank to be included in the materiality assessment of our clients and in turn reference what is most important from a transition standpoint, what we'd like to ideally see from their strategy, the key performance and metrics, how they're regarding climate risk management, and ultimately what are their disclosures. And so all of those areas we really push forward on and acting as a, as a, a, a key stakeholder. You know, furthermore, kind of just elaborating on where did I see that pivot or how stakeholders were driven by sustainability and just communities and society, generally speaking, through my career, you know, I began working in really the renewable energy space. What I had done is I had introduced specific investors coming out of Europe, ironically, because they were naturally on the forefront. One of my clients was the heir to the Valencia Orange family in Spain. And I had met him in New York and he was actively seeking new swaths of land or farmland here in the Northeast Corridor to develop into solar and PV projects that would have the ability to tie into the utility scale you know, requirements that were coming through. And at the time, the you know, political seasons, shall we? But at the time we had a, 
you know, we had a democratic state and we were really looking to push the envelope around renewables. This is going back now, my God, I'm going to say probably 15 years ago. And what we wanted to do is to really identify what those grants or economic incentives that were laid out. And, and he saw those, this particular investor, for instance, had seen those in, New, in the state of New Jersey. And, you know, coming, growing up in the metropolitan area, I had some connections and, and whatnot and some family and, and really reached out and said, you know, where are there opportunities to tie in and interconnect with the grid here in New Jersey? There were 30% grants given out at the time. And there were also $750 SRECs, which were these solar energy renewable certificates. Now, when you play into the economics of a deal and you look at that, that grant or that subsidy, it changes the entire makeup and the revenue driver behind those deals. And so what I did was I almost played intermediary where I brought in these investors out of Spain with the you know, complete sole purpose was to develop renewable projects, become an investor, see the, the ingenuine increase in impact of revenue based off of PV installations, and then couple that with an EPC that was local here. And so we were able to bring these teams together. And I'm sorry, and an, an APC? APC. So you're looking at the engineering and procurement contractors. Cool. So these are the guys that are actually yeah. going to put the stakes in the ground. They're going to cool. develop the land itself, whether that's including microinverters or large transmission systems to really build out these PV projects. And so with those PV projects came an enormous amount of opportunity in that state over the course of several years. But again, all based on the prerequisite that there were economic incentives in the market. Yeah. yeah. And the catch to this is surely several years later, those market incentives were removed. So when, it, you know, when administrators change, policies change, there was a freeze on some of that, that let, you know, available grant. My investors decided we're good. We're moving on to the next, <laughs> the next country or the next opportunity base. And because, you know, a lot of, to do with sustainability has to do with the subsidies that are available. And we're still seeing that in the market and that's still going to be a huge driver. I mean, even hydrogen today, you know, we want to see incentives and we want to see subsidies there to push it so we can develop it further, innovate further and get it to the point that it needs to be right now. It's such a green premium, although we such an appetite for it. So mm -hmm. we want to really move out of the green premiums and really subsidize those opportunities. And today, flash forward 15 years later, solar has taken off tenfold and we've seen the price of panels and inverters drop considerably. They're truly at parity. And if not, renewable energy is even more cost effective than developing a new oil line today, you know, oil or gas project today. So that's a, a huge convergence and a change in the market that we've seen. So that's really fascinating. You've talked there a lot about the sort of the economic environment, the taxes, subsidies, and, you know, all that sort of stuff, investors looking for places to do the, you know, do the business. And you talked about yourself as being an, an intermediary in all of that. So, yeah. I, I, so when you were describing all of that, it's sort of, it was almost like it could have been anyone doing that, you know. Like, I mean, not not that anyone could have done it. It's like, well, what is it that, what is it that your role? What's the human side of your role? I guess you know, you can, you can just, you know, you can look at all the sums, you know, the, the budgets, and does it all stack up? I just like it's a spreadsheet. Okay, go. But it's more than that. It must be this. There must be a human element to this. What oh, is the human element in those relationships? What, what, what's right. that all about? Agreed, agreed. Yes, there, there absolutely is. I mean, I think that, you know, I had seen the opportunity to do this because I was building at the time passive homes for a magnet 
big business magnate here in New York named Ronald Perlman. And I was working for him for McAndrews and Forms and building these passive homes, which would be these highly insulated homes that were able to drive energy through solar and uh, water from rain catchment systems. And I was doing this as a, in my youth. I was maybe all of 20, 21 years old. And I just got a flavor for the opportunity to, to create a better, more sustainable future for the homeowner in a way. And I think that I saw that and I got experience to do so. But because Perlman had such incredible expertise and ability to spend, he had the dollar to outpay and overpay for these types of products and services, that it was tangible for him. But for the for for today's citizen, it wasn't at the time, it just, it wasn't an opportunity to, to re-insulate your home and put solar on your and create these rain systems and these smart these smart systems that would really read and, and understand the breathing element of a property. And I was able to see that. Now, by way of background, my father owns a considerable amount of real estate and was one of the largest electrical contractors in New York for, for over 50 years. So I had this incredible background and, and this feeder coming into it where I knew that the electrical capacity of what we were able to build was genuinely a, a game changer, right? We were able to, to shift into a renewable format, something that we started doing and I was really getting a taste of very young. I mean, you know, my family's you know, business was putting solar and, and small cylindrical wind turbines on, you know, Times Square buildings when I was, you know, in my early 20s. And so I got a sense of, of what a difference that made. And I saw the passion coming out of my family and I saw them really moving some of the business and some of their employees set into that. I mean, we ran a massive enterprise in New York where we managed every traffic light in Manhattan for 40 years. And you know, supplied a lot of the lighting to, you know, some of the most iconic buildings, including the Chrysler building, the George Washington Bridge and Yankee Stadium and things of this nature. So when you have these relationships and you see the impact of what electrifying a major city like New York can do, and then you can convert that into a renewable, more sustainable energy, it was by far one of the most exciting things for me to work on. And then to bring it into business and then to bring it into policy, I then left working on those significant, I mean, but massive renewable projects, learning that policy was going to change what I was doing for a living. I then put myself through an extensive program that was being developed at Columbia University under the tutelage of Jeffrey Sachs, who was essentially the founder mm -hmm. of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. At the time they were called the Millennium Development Goals. And so, you know, Sachs had developed this incredible curriculum with Steve Cohen and launched through the Earth Institute, a program that was a, a master's in science. And I applied for the program and I was one of the first 50 students to ever take the class. That's again, going back many, many years ago. But, you know, it continued to drive my interest in sustainability. I then saw the policy angle so much more clear and how influential that can be. And I think that's what I'm seeing now, 20 years into my career. What is it that these 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 politicians, shall we, right, at the end of the day, are really impacting. You saw Joe Biden take office here just, you know, in the last couple, several years. He literally launched the most extensive climate bill we've ever seen, you know, $380 billion dedicated in the Inflation Reduction Act to curb climate change. This is nothing like we've ever seen before. Our president prior, Donald Trump, had quite the opposite approach to climate and to science. 
he actually removed us from the Paris Accord the first week in office and went so far as dismantling over 200 laws that were set throughout the EPA, our Environmental Protection Agency. So when you see the, the change in that political season, it can really develop um, a career path for someone dedicated to sustainability. I went from a, a nice, you know, kind of corporate social responsibility, environmental steward, sitting in, you know, large financial institutions, private equity houses through my career, to now working at the fourth largest global institution, sitting in a global corporate investment bank, because we see climate as not just a risk uh, approach, but an opportunity approach. There are two sides of this. There's value creation and value protection. And in what I do, I look at it from both it's a hybrid role. And we really wanna manage both the expectations from our climate risk management teams, understanding asset preservation, but also looking at the transition opportunity to finance the next stage of renewable development, the next stage of hydrogen, ammonia, carbon capture and sequestration, sustainable aviation fuels, and incubating some of the more innovative things like offshore floating wind and solar and things of this nature that we're seeing develop so beautifully throughout the world, we want to be those financiers. And so that's where we really bridge all things that we feel can be the most impact for our clients and for us as a bank. Thank you. So, so, so when people talk about sustainability and sort of the challenges and what people are doing in sustainability, and sometimes it comes across a little bit as like there's the superhero. There's, you know, there's this person who's got this vision, this passion, whether they're a sustainability manager or a director, or whether they're a campaigner, it's like, they have this thing, they're going to do it. And they'll, you know, they've, they've achieved all this stuff. And I'm sure there's an element of truth to that. But the reality is, in our experience, it's like, there's a whole network of collaborators and people who support you and who are working with you to make them make this thing happen. So I guess in terms of your role within the bank, what sort of network, both formal and informal, do you have with key players and people all over the organization who can unlock things, make things happen? What's really. your experience of that? Yeah, it's interesting you say this. There's always a handful of internal employees that raise their hand in complete interest of the topic. So they may have a background in technology or data, but they have a passion for sustainability. We have a team out of our West Coast offices, and as we've been developing what, what is genuinely one of the most difficult areas is obtaining the data required to disclose appropriately. And so we're in the process now as, as, as a bank, you know, kind of here in the Americas explicitly to develop a data aggregation tool, something that would physically go into the present market with artificial intelligence and machine learning and scrub really every public document we can find on a particular corporate that is available and then input that information into to some formalized template that aggregates specifically financed emissions for us, right? So that would be their scope one and two emissions. And then all activities around their ESG, you know, kind of persona. In doing so, it's been very difficult, right? I mean, you're not going to go out and, and take an individual and scrub every sustainability report by hand. It's just inefficient. And, and a lot of these reports could be stagnant. So it's important to start utilizing the modern ability to, to drive technology as an enabler to what we want to see from a disclosure standpoint. And so our chief data office out of the West Coast has been very interested in this topic. And I didn't know if I was going to get more of a, don't give us another job. And, you know, this is just too taxing and too difficult to build, um, or we don't have the budgets. 
despite all of the confrontation in the sense of how do we align our spend with that of sustainability when it's such a lofty and long-term endeavor? Because it truly is, right? You know, you see banks think about the next quarter. We have short tenor loans anywhere between three to five years. When you're talking to someone about a a 2050 goal. <laughs> so, you know, some of the employees just feel, well, I may not be here. I'll probably be retired. This may not even be something I really want to focus on. I'd rather ca capture my commissions and close my deals, you know, upfront right here in real time instead of worrying about what calamity may show up, you know, 30, 40, 50 years from now. And so, you know, it's an interesting conversation to have because you really want to see the sustainability journey of our clients and working with them will probably take two or three iterations of leaders throughout a bank to get to that 2050 goal. And so taking the the passion from our chief data office today and including that into the tech bill that we're working on has been an incredible driver and they've really been a champion for us in building what we need. And we then in turn go back to our executive committees. So we go back to our executive committees like you know, the head of our global corporate investment bank, who's truly been a steward around project finance. So as one of the leader project financiers in the world, MUFG has had the, the incredible opportunity to work specifically with some of the biggest renewable developers in the world. And so they they feel pretty confident about that. And they kind of, they're always, shall we, you know, just kind of, you know, you know, slapping each other on the back, you know, great job. We're doing a really great job around this, but there's always more that we can do. So, you know, it's a, it's an important area that, you know, some of these bankers are, you know, capitalists at the end of the day, I call myself a sustainable capitalist, you know, but I, I try to look into where are the revenue drivers, where's the opportunity, and then who can be a champion for us. And right now, we have a champion in a corner we never thought we would, and that's our data team. These conversations with, you know, these people who are turn, turn out are passionate and they become, you know, engaged in what you're trying to do, whether that's the data people or the maybe on the, on the executive committee. How does it come about that you discover that they are excited and interested and, and, and passionate about this? Because well, I think that's something a lot of people are sort of like, oh, I don't right, want to start talking about, I don't want to talk about sustainability because whatever, or I can only talk about it if I show them the money. And how does it, how does it work in practice for you, those sort of conversations? You know, I, I think sometimes what, what has been good is putting out these thought leadership pieces. So we have a markets research team. They design very extensive reports around environmental social governance, but also around market drivers and what's happening, uh, you know, kind of in the in the capital markets. And so what we've done is we've been included in those literature reviews and really bringing together a lot of, you know, top level research. And what has happened is that gets put out through, you know, various distribution channels, one of which is an internal site. And it's interesting because every time I showcase a piece of information, whether it's a knowledge share or even an update on a particular event or conference or something I've attended. For instance, I was at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt just last year. And when doing that, I had really just based on my own experience physically there at the conference over a two week period, I included a blog that identified what were some of the top topic, you know, top some of the, what are some of the key topics that were being addressed, who were some of the key players that I had a chance to interact with, panels that we hosted at the Japan Pavilion, and, you know, and just the co-coordination of all the incredible people that are there during those weeks. I was inserting this blog on a weekly, you know, on a daily basis. So every night at the end of the day, I would log in, I'd get into our internal systems, I'd populate, you know, several pages on what was going on. I'd showcase a few images of some of the big 
leaders and, you know, thought leaders, industry leaders, politicians, everybody that was there. And, you know, it was great. And, and at the end of the day, you know, it felt like, okay, that was my download. Now on to the next, right? Now with the time change, I then all of a sudden receive all these messages from internal employees saying, oh my God, that's amazing. Oh my God, what are you doing here? Oh, you know, we're so interested in this topic. Is it possible we can follow up? Or I'm looking at doing some stuff in blended finance in Latin America. I work out of our Brazil office. We haven't met before, but I'd love to sit down with you in the future when I come to New York next summer. I mean, all of a sudden, all of these interests that I didn't even know were internal are now being brought to me because I had the opportunity to showcase and distribute what I've been doing you know, kind of as that spokesperson or as that leader throughout the bank. So, you know, on sustainability. So it's, it's a great, you know, kind of connection point for us. And so that's one area where I see a drive around some of our internal employee set. And then we host a lot of events too, right? MUFG comes in, we advertise a lot of things. Last week I was in Amsterdam at the Infrastructure Journal, uh, you know, their global magazine showcases a renewable energy finance forum. We had a chance to speak there. I moderated several panels, brought in, you know, key players from around the world that are focused on renewable energy specifically, but also what are we thinking about battery storage? What are we thinking about tariffs and, you know, the IRA opposed to what the EU is putting out, CSRD, other implications around regulation. How do you feel about that? So you have these engaging conversations on stage and only moments later do you have the opportunity to then speak with some of the most important and critical people in the business that were in that audience. And so in turn, that's another opportunity for us to engage with stakeholders and then build business, right? And best practice and share what our peers are doing and, and what we are doing. So we're kind of all on the same page, you know, kind of following the same dream, right? <laughs> so... Yeah, that's that's, that's, yeah, it's amazing. Nice. And I love you know, sharing those stories and all that stuff coming back in because if you don't tell people about it, no one knows you're doing it. And it's uh, no one knows. You know, discover exactly. all this stuff that people are, yeah, people, people are up for it if you give them the opportunity. That's great. So what, uh, so and you've talked a lot, you know, sort of uh, your passion on this is coming, comes through really clearly. And, and but where, where does that come from? Why does it matter to you? I'd like to take a moment just now to let you know about our next event. If you've been listening for a while, You'll know that most people are concerned about climate change and would like to make more sustainable choices in their lives. Despite this open door, most business sustainability initiatives fail to engage staff, and as a result, they miss their targets. The reason is that most initiatives don't pay enough attention to what genuinely motivates colleagues, nor do they recognise the barriers that hold back even the most highly motivated employees from taking action. On Wednesday the 22nd of May, join me and Jamie, the creator of the Most Sustainable Workplace Index, and learn how the index can help you tap into and unlock most employees' latent motivation to do the right thing for people and planet. You'll discover how the index can help you to gather hard evidence of what's working and what needs attention across locations and divisions and seniority levels. You'll identify the focus areas where the sustainability team, L&D, HR and so on, should allocate time and resources to make the most progress. And you'll discover how you can demonstrate year-on-year -year progress with consistent and comparable data on sustainability culture. And you can use that for action planning, reporting, benchmarking and accreditation. Do join us on Wednesday the 22nd of May. You'll find the link in the show notes. Yeah, why does it matter to me? That's a great question. Well, you know, I, I can't imagine... So you're coming out of New York, being raised here you know, going to colleges here and so forth, you really see two sides of the business world. You see those who 
genuinely have a goal to, you know, earn as much as they can run over whomever they want to get there. And then you see the other arm where it's, you know, in, you know, this kind of impact oriented mentality, aligning their interests and their values with what they do for a living. And, and maybe that wasn't so present 20 years ago, but today you see consumer preference as such an enormous driver to why a lot of companies are changing the way they, in which they operate, whether it's, you know, labeling something with their carbon footprint and understanding where their supply chain is coming from and that human rights are being regarded and that, um, you know, we are not going to pollute downstream. We're not going to hire children as laborers. You look at all of these other indicators and you see better business survive and thrive. And I wanted to be part of that narrative. I didn't want to be part of the narrative that I was willing to work within the premise that, you know, our one goal here is to create shareholder value and to continue just to build revenue, whether it's sustainable or not, whether it's regarding our communities or not, uh, and whether it's referring, retaining, and caring about our employees. I think those elements are so critical. And I just didn't want to put myself in a situation where I would have been, you know, visually seeing, you know, kind of the detriments of, of what you sometimes see, this kind of this business acumen that people don't want to um, regard or rear. It just wasn't something I wanted to be part of. I just wanted to be part of the business that was going to you know, not change the world per se, but at least build yeah. a better, more sustainable world. I just, I didn't, I didn't want to work for a company like that. And so, you know, kind of the convergence and, and, you know, kind of, you know, yeah, of course, life throws you opportunities and you see things differently. And then sometimes the doors shut too, and you redirect. Right. And so I think, you know, I saw some opportunities in, in tangible work, you know, working in renewable, that was great. But when a door shut and policies changed, I shifted gears, worked in policy, you know, worked through my academic career, I then later saw how critical those ESG factors were. And then I embedded myself in writing. And I ended up taking on a, a doctoral degree as well and focusing on how and really arguing how environmental social governance factors should be embedded in a 10K and that those non-financial metrics are equally to or sometimes even more important than the financial metrics of a company. And that that annual shareholder report that goes out should have a divisive informational segment on ESG for every bank and understanding climate as well for every corporate and whether it be banks or investors to review, but all stakeholders should be included. And I think, you know, I kept following that. I kept writing about it. I kept seeing the value in it and research and literature started to build around that very concept. And so that's really where I saw the the, the kind of the change and momentum mm -hmm. around my career. But it's always just been a passion to do the right thing and to work in an impactful space. Right now I'm sitting at, you know, a large capital allocator. And so I have the chance to large, you know, make large, you know, lending decisions based on sustainable practice. So I'm, you know, not just a, a single violin, but rather <laughs> yeah. moving forward, right? And so I really have a big bandwidth, you know, a lot of bandwidth to work with. So it's great. One of the things you said in the middle of that, you talked about seeing the businesses that were sort of impact driven, they were doing great stuff, that are, you know, environmental and social benefits. And you said they're surviving and thriving as a result. It reminded me of an essay by the philosopher John Kay. He talks about this, this concept of, of obliquity. Basically, he's saying that and that the businesses that are most profitable are actually pursuing another goal. And because they're pursuing something they believe in, they end up being more successful financially. Those mm -hmm. that pursue 
purely financial goals tend not to. And you give some interesting case studies about ICI and others. But I just mm-hmm. wondered, you know, is that something that in your experience that those organizations that I'm I mean, agree yeah, pursue it because they believe in it and then everything else just follows it. after. Exactly. It's almost a, a moral covenant of sorts. It's, it's, you know, they feel that, you know, if we're not caring for our societies and our communities and we're not caying about biodiversity, I mean, there's a lot of topics, right? Sustainability is quite broad, but if you're not dealing with and understanding biodiversity, you saw the, the momentum around plastics and, you know, removing of plastic. You see so many companies now, I mean, you can't walk into a specific clothing store without having, or a grocer without having your own canvas bag, recyclable yeah. bag and so forth. I mean, these are things that have changed considerably. Now, you know, I have friends that have told me about their mothers, you know, shopping in Sweden, you know, or in Norway in the seventies and they were carrying canvas bags then. <laughs> so, you yeah. know, and that's what they remember. Right. But then here we are, you know, in New York and New Jersey, we just eliminated plastic bags like a few months yeah. ago. Yeah. So, you know, clearly it took some time, but, you know, these are things that, you know, changing that mind shift and changing that culture shift, I think is so incredible to see, you know, we shouldn't be driven merely by financial metrics. We really should be driven by what we want to see, both from a moral perspective, a values perspective. I think that's what we want to teach our children, mm-hmm. too. <laughs> I think that's an incredibly yeah. important point. You know, a company that we've worked with is Patagonia. The CEO, founder of Patagonia, yeah. you know, is a great story and a great case yeah. study of how a company who really made outdoor apparel, essentially, you know, was able to say, well, you know, that was one driver. I earned a lot. I, you know, I it, it, that company had the chance to develop a good product, but at the same time, they developed, you know, kind of impact while doing it. And and he now, I most recently decided to change his entire business plan to donate his profits to his foundation and to really run this as a, as a giving operation and not just a, how much can I earn from the consumer, but how much can I give back to the consumer? And I think that's an incredible story you know, you yeah. know, one company in, in many, but there's a lot of B Corps out of there. There's a lot of, you know, companies that are really striving to showcase their stewardship. And I think that's an important thing to note. And even some of the biggest retailers. I mean, you look at the, you know, the, the L'Oreal's of the world, the Estee Lauders, they are now very clear in their case for sustainability to prove out what, and the transparency around what's in their supply chain, what is in their ingredients and what products they're selling to show that consumer exactly their carbon footprint and, and, you know, what, what is it? Is it the organic elements that I want to put on my face in the morning? You know, you want to know exactly what it is that you're using today. And I think the next generation is very, very keen on this more than ever before. At the beginning of our conversation, you talked a lot about the, these new regulations from the SEC and that sort of has a big sort of driver of what's going on in the, in the business at the moment for you. What's the next big thing for you, for you? What's and I think maybe I'm going to pull this back to for you personally on your journey, rather than what's happening out in the world. But to what do you really want to move forward? What do you really want to unlock to help create a, a shift? Or is it just like I know where I'm going? More you know, keep, sort of keep on more of the same at the moment. Well, the irony with the SEC proposal was that's what I wrote in my thesis, you know, <laughs> years ago. So you know, it, it's kind of how I, I've been arguing that for a long time and working alongside some of the best in the business, like Dr. Gene Rogers, who founded the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, when, you know, those frameworks were issued, that's what I really drove a lot of my writing about, was that there were key industries with material issues that needed to be defined and quantitatively or qualitatively disclosed. That was an area I was truly focused on. As we saw the convergence now of companies wanting and willing to disclose, not just on a voluntary basis, 
the policymakers now creating a mandatory disclosure regimen is going to, to really pivot the way companies operate, full stop. When you look at what's going to happen thereafter, it's how do these companies now who have set and, and you know, devised these trajectories of net zero by 2050, what are they going to do? what are the implementation plans that are going to be required? And I think what we're going to see is in the next decade, the dollars being spent in the innovation hubs. One of the things we do, even as a, as a bank, is we charitably donate to NYU's think tank, which is called the Urban Future Prize. It's almost a Shark Tank style event where we come in as a judge and we sponsor the event. And you have all of these entrepreneurs come up stage develop and showcase their innovation. And we then decide, you know, kind of through that, you know, style format, Shark Tank format, we decide on whom we feel is most fitting and has the opportunity to become scalable. And then based upon them winning the, the most votes, they then get the, the sponsorship dollars to start incubating and, and developing their business plans. And so it's just, you know, and this is dealing with obviously, you know, more graduate student, yeah. a little, you know, postgraduate student by a you know, group of people, but the innovations that can be captured, say it's in a battery storage capacity or some sort of sequestration opportunity, these, these are the things we want to see implement, change, and to really become that pivot for companies. They need to absorb those types of innovations, continue to fund them and scale them so they can become commercially viable. And I feel that's an area that we really want to focus on, both as a bank, but also as an individual. I want to see more time spent working with those innovators. There's enough innovation on the table that can get us to 2050. It just needs to be financed. So if it's not financed, they they, they have a term. It's it's kind of neg a little negative sounding, but there's a term in, in that kind of startup world that they hit a valley of death. They literally, they, they take off, they've got some friends and family funding. And then before you know it, without that high, you know, higher level, larger investor, they drop off. The innovation could be very, you know, applicable to what's necessary for a transition. It just doesn't have the legs, yeah. you know, and, and that unfortunately happens, right? I mean, some of these guys are, are critical, you know, to, to the change that we need. We just need to finance and we need to be on the forefront of that. And so I think that incubation and that framework needs to be implemented across private equity, banks, et cetera, in order to get it and policymakers, right? I think there is some dollars set aside in the IRA to incubate and finance hydrogen, for instance, it really needs to take off right now. These are the areas I think we're going to see oh, as the next phase. I'd, I'd love to get right into more of that, but I know you've got to leave very shortly for your next meeting. You talked about innovation through the shark tank type things you know, on the outside, but what's the, what's the sort of the key thing or the key to success, do you think, in terms of those organizations internally making a shift, making a switch in whether that's mindset, whether it's whatever, but what's the key to them? For being the able investors? To, for, for, yeah, so the, the organizations you're investing in, the, you know, yeah, your the, clients, the, what's the, you know, the, the shift right, for them? Interesting to, because, you know, for, say you take this, you know, wildly genius technologist, right? And, you know, they may have an incredible opportunity to, to build the next software that's going to enable climate tech and so forth. Okay, that's fantastic. But do they have the acumen around business management, money management? you know, that financial literacy element where, you know, unfortunately you see a lot of innovators and entrepreneurs, you know, these founders, shall we really, you know, excited about what they're building, 
but not really caring or taking in the management element of how a business is run. And so sometimes what's important is private equity or you know, certain capital, you know, venture capital funds to come in and lend a hand in the sense of how to build a business appropriately. And I think that's where some of those entrepreneurs lose sight of how to get there between three, five, 10 years. Those are incredibly important relationships, strategic partnerships, and strategic investors that they need to seek in order to make sure that their project gets off the ground. Sometimes that, that's what I see as an impediment to some of their success is that they don't have that robust management pedigree, shall we, to really elevate their product or service. And so I, I feel like I've seen that. I've seen some incredible tech you know, I've seen some incredible advisory work and detailed, you know, clients that have come to us and said, you know, we want to do this, but they didn't have all the other band members quite there yet. So, you know, sometimes it's important to build in advisory teams or sure. to bring in more, you know, co you know, corporate uh, operations officers and, and financial officers to help monetize that uh, platform for them. What about those organizations? What about those? What about the the client businesses that you know you may be investing in that aren't they're, they're, you know, they're not a sustainability or an energy or innovation business particularly, but they're a mainstream business. They've got a good business ahead of them. If they can recognize, you know, if they can actually grasp sustainability and address the transition they need to make in terms of emissions and so on. I mean, whether you know, for them it's a it's a big big shift of perspective. Do you see what what do you see as the sort of the the key for them? Well, what we're doing is we've kind of set up a, a key performance indicator throughout the bank to monitor all of that client engagement. So, you know, there are very sophisticated clients that have a journey set out. They've got climate pledges. They're part of various coalitions or affiliated groups. Then you have where do we start? You have that. It's a whole nother subsector yeah. of the industry. And they're just in the beginning of their journey. And so that's where we can prove to be extremely valuable and show really from an advisory perspective, what are some of the best practices their peers are doing? So remember, I mean, if we're financing 10 oil and gas companies, we know what the Shell and the Chevrons and the Exxons are doing. But what about the mom and pop, you know, middle market, Midwestern, a power player that really wants to figure out how do I really convert from oil or coal rather, right? Even the coal players, which we are now completely divesting from and will be completely, you know, removing all exposure by 2040 as a pledge. But how do you take the coal players to think about perhaps a transition or bridge fuel like LNG, natural gas, and then convertly over time, look at renewables? We want to hold their hand through that entire process. We're not looking to divest from those players, those hard to abate industries. We want to work with them and we want to introduce them to new ideas, innovative uh, systems, products, services, and technologies that can enable them to a more sustainable business operation. If we can't partner with them on that transition and we just leave them and divest, then yeah. how can we genuinely make an influence and ultimately an impact? So that's really what we like to do and that's where we want to position ourselves. Cool. Okay. Final question before we wrap up. What book, article, video would you recommend to other sustainability leaders? You've gone, oh, that's interesting. There's a fantastic author and he's written multiple books. His name is John Doerr. Uh, coming out of the private equity space and venture capital space, he's harnessed some of the most incredible companies with, you know, allocating capital and being that strategic partner. So if I would if I would say just someone to reference, maybe just, you know, Google John Doerr, D-O-E-R-R, -R, and just, you know, 
dive into some of his most recent pieces. He did a large book that came out last year, all about kind of the sustainability roadmap and, you know, incredible work that he's done. And it's really interesting coming from a practitioner's perspective. There's some great pieces out there from that academia world, but the practitioner perspective is so fantastic. And his experiences with some of the most innovative companies and how they've launched and have become now, you know, some of the biggest movers in the industry of sustainability. It's incredible to see it through his eyes. And so, yes, I recommend John Doerr as, a, as an author to seek. Thank you very much. Toby, we are running out of time. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us. Okay, thank you. I hope you found Toby's experience and insights as fascinating as I did. There's a lot there for all of us to think about, even if we're not leading sustainability in a global finance house. In the next episode, I get together with my colleague Morag Watson to discuss the interview, reflect on what we've heard, and to look at ways in which you could apply some of the things that Toby's been doing in your work. I'm Osbert Lancaster, and I hope this episode of Leadership for Sustainability will help you lead on sustainability in your organisation. You'll find additional resources, masterclasses and programmes on our website at realize.earth. What you're doing is so important now more than ever. Keep up the good work and be sure to look after yourself. Bye for now.